Matthias Media <clears throat> puts out a track that you can use to lead people into an introduction of Christ called Two Ways, short for Two Ways to Live. And it begins, it's, it's a very usable track. There are a few things that you, you need to beef it up with, but it's a very usable track to challenge people. And it starts with God being the good ruler and the creator, as all presentations of the gospel should start, is right in creation that God is our creator and he has a, a say over us because he has created us and then leads us into an understanding and lets you, if you're using the track, lead the person into an understanding that they are in rebellion to this holy God who created them. And then that this God is holy and just. And that his justice requires him and his holiness requires him to punish sin. And that the person that you're talking to, the person without Christ, is rebellious before this holy creating God. And so that there is a future ahead of them. And yet God, in his compassion and his mercy, sent Christ. He sent Christ to die and to be raised again. And he's now the risen ruler and savior. So there is a, a, the compassion of God brings forward this son of God that his work will be credited to all of the, the accounts of all of those who believe in him. And if this is the case, if we're born sinners and we have offended a holy God and he is just and right to punish us because of our sin, but yet he is also a compassionate God who sends his son then there's a choice to be made because there are only two ways to live. If this is the worldview that the Bible brings, there are two ways to live. And one of those ways is to live in rebellion to this God and continue in that rebellion and reject the offer sent by God, sent by the ruler of the universe, to live our own way, to continue in the damage that our rebellion causes us, and ultimately facing death and judgment. That's one way. That's the way everyone starts. But because of the grace and mercy of God, there is another way. And so the choice is before us. Will it be the road that leads to death and judgment, or will it be the way that leads to life? Submitting to Jesus as our ruler instead of rebelling. Relying on Jesus' death and resurrection instead of going our own way, trusting in our own works and our own wisdom and our own righteousness. Being forgiven by God instead of being rebels against God in that rebellion. And receiving a new life that lasts forever. So these two ways are set before us in this tract. And that, it is the biblical worldview of the gospel that the Bible presents. That we are created by God. We are sinners and he has sent his son. And we need to receive his son by faith through repentance and trust in him for his work on our behalf. And when we do that, we're on one way that leads to eternal life. It leads to putting us on the road to holiness that Christ has already paved on our behalf. But if we don't choose that, we will be heading to death and destruction. And these are opposite directions from the same God. This is Isaiah's message to us in chapters 34 and 35. Isaiah brings to us clearly the picture of the entire scope of the universe leading up to the day of vengeance of our God. What it will be like on that day for those who have chosen the way of rebellion, the way of self, and what it will be like on that day for those who have chosen the way of holiness, the way of Christ. So he wants us to hear that message today, and therefore I want you to hear that message today. Now, before we go any further, if you're here and you're saying, well, I'm a believer in Christ, so that chapter 34 that talks about judgment, that doesn't really have anything to do with me. Because I, I, I'm, I'm freed from that. I, I've gone on the other way. I've, I've, I've come to Christ and he has received, he's forgiven my sins. And yet it is for us, isn't it? Because as we confessed this morning, we are people who still sin. The difference between us on the way of holiness and, and those people who are on the way of self and rebellion is because that we have been granted the ability to repent of that sin. 
and to trust again in the finished work of Christ. And when we stop doing that, then we have proven that we've never been on the way to holiness. And so there are warning passages throughout the scripture that remind us, you need to persevere. You must persevere on the way to holiness. Now we know our theology tells us that we will persevere because Christ preserves us on that road. It is his work, not ours. And yet persevere we must. And so these warning passages are for us as well. And you say, well, I'm never going to do that. I can introduce you to dozens of people who have sat in churches and done that. You know some of them. So don't ever think that we are the people who can't do that. Because as soon as we slip into this life of revealing we have never known Christ. Then it shows we were never on that road to begin with. Now before I send you off into into a lack of security at all. Let's remind ourselves of truths here. If we are truly in Christ, can we lose our salvation? And it's a resounding what? No. No. It's a resounding no that if Christ has redeemed us, he loses none. And yet it's also a resounding truth of Scripture that on almost every page, we are commanded to persevere in holiness and to obey the word of God and to live in a certain way and to be found on this way of holiness, chartered by our holy God, leading to him. And so we are constantly told that we are to do this. So if we're in the mistaken thought that because we are saved, that nothing is required of us, then we have not met the God of the Bible and we are not truly saved. Because the works prepared beforehand will come out of those who are redeemed. So we're not talking about if you're here this morning and a believer that you can lose your salvation. We're saying we're reminding ourselves that there are people who can pretend and they don't even realize they're pretending. I've really never met someone who comes in to join a church knowing they're a believer just to trash the church. They all come in professing Christ. And then when they're constantly confronted with the word of God for their lives and that is stench to them, they begin to slowly move back away from Scripture, slowly move back away from Christ. All of a sudden, Scripture doesn't matter anymore. Scripture is the interpretation of man. That's just your opinion. And they move further and further away because the holiness that we're pursuing is a stench to them. And a Bible-preaching church brings that out. So we always want to remind ourselves that when we have passages of judgment, we're not fearing God for our judgment. We We are inwardly saying, God, remind me of my sin. Reveal that to me so that I might repent and walk in obedience to you because that is a loving discipline of our Father. That's why we hold so strongly to this idea of discipleship and church discipline in our church. We hold to that because sometimes we blind ourselves. And we need somebody who loves us to come to us and shake us up and say, what are you doing? This is not the life of a professing believer. And the more we do that, the more those who are wolves run away. So this is what Isaiah is speaking to his people, right? And in chapter 34 and 35, we have this picture of the final judgment. And we have this picture of final salvation, the new heavens and the new earth. But we also have the picture of us today on that road. So our ears need to be in tune to this. Now let me tell you, if you're, not, if you're here this morning and, and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, Isaiah is after you today. The hound of heaven through Isaiah, through the fallible preaching of a man is after you today. And this doesn't matter whether you're 6 or 80. This is the day of your salvation. If you will but hear the voice of the Lord and the joy of salvation, and turn to Christ. Isaiah chapter 34. I'm not going to read both chapters all in a row this morning. We'll read them in chunks. But in Isaiah 34 and 35, we see two acts of God taken against two groups of people on his final day of judgment. Two acts of God taken against two groups of people on his final day of vengeance. I'm sorry, I said judgments, it's vengeance. Same idea, but vengeance is an important um, word that ties these chapters together. 
The first act of God, Yahweh will act with final judgment against those who trust in men and their wisdom. And the metaphor here is from a garden to a desert. Now, I'm, I'm making this outline very compact. One statement for each chapter because I think that's what the passage is doing for us. Chapters 34 and 35 close this large section that began, I know some of you have had birthdays since then, but back in Isaiah 13. Remember that in Isaiah 13, we started those 10 oracles against the nations. Do you remember that? The 10 oracles against the nation. And then in chapter 24, 25, 26, and 27, we have this connecting passage talking about judgment and hope, judgment and salvation, both in the current setting and the final setting. And then beginning in chapter 28, we had the six woes. Or if you've got an ESV in front of you, the six ahs. I think woe is so much better. Um, the six woes that are directed to the nations in, uh, beginning in chapter 28, ending in chapter 33. So chapters 34 and 35 put an exclamation point not only on the six woes, and not, but, but all the way back to chapter 13 and all of these chapters, chapter after chapter after chapter of judgment. And remember, who is the audience of all of them? Judah, God's people. Do the nations hear the oracles against them? We don't know. Maybe they were preached to them. But the purpose is to get God's people not to trust in men, not to trust in horses, not to trust in their own wisdom, but to trust in Yahweh. Because God is the one. He is the one who has the strength and the power and the wisdom that they need. And that's been the, the entire message so far in Isaiah. And so this sums up what happens to those who refuse to leave the way of self and rebellion. And those who trust in Christ and go in the way of holiness. And it brings it to it with great clarity. If you're not careful, you might think you're in the New Testament today instead of the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament screams the glory of God in Christ, doesn't it? And we see that today. Well, let's look at these first six verses in chapter 34. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world, and all that comes after it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. The slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpse shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine like, figs, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Well, what we have here in this opening is, what, is a traditional call to God's courtroom. Remember, we've seen that. We've seen that already in the first chapter of Isaiah. That's the way it began in verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. Children have reared up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. So it's a call for everyone come to the bar of Yahweh because he is about to um, hold court and convict those who are enemies of his. Well, in this section, that part of the court is done. We're here for sentencing now. That's what's before us here. Yahweh is sentencing the enemies that he has throughout all the nations. And, and it's even leading to the fact that not only is it the sentence, but it's the beginning of the sentence. That's the language as strong as it is. So he's calling the nations to hear, the, 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 the peoples to give attention. But not only all the peoples, the whole earth and all that fills it and the world and all that comes from it, the entire creative order is being summoned here. I want you to look there at verse 2. For the Lord, now look over at verse 6. The Lord has a sword, later in that same verse. For the Lord has a sacrifice. Verse 8, for the Lord has a day. Who do you think the subject of these are so far? This is Yahweh himself speaking. And these mark out his character and his actions based on that character. So if I had a more detailed outline, these four statements would guide us, wouldn't it? It gives us a solid structure to look through. 
Verse 2, for Yahweh is enraged, his anger is at its height against all the nations. And then we, remember, we have this, this parallelism that sometimes restates stronger, sometimes negates, sometimes restates the same way. His, Yahweh is enraged, his, he is furious, and that is against all the nations, against all their hosts. So this is all the people, it is also their gods. I think that's what the host is talking about here. It is against their gods as well. Now we're going to see this sweeping language that we see in scripture talking about judgment. And sometimes these signs of uh, things, that, some that aren't in this text as well, like lightning and thunder and stuff like that, or sulfur and smoke and fire. Sometimes they're talking about the, the final judgment. Sometimes they're talking about an intermediate judgment. But all intermediate judgments are preparing us for what? There will come a day where there will be no more opportunity for grace. And that's always intended. So the Lord is enraged against the nations, against their gods. He has devoted them to destruction. Now you remember that term in scripture. You remember when God's people went and they, and they um, overtook Jericho and God put a ban on Jericho. He, he said, all of the stuff that you're going to get, all the people, all the stuff, all the gold, all of that, they're mine. He put them all under a ban, under, 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 under destruction. And they were to, that means that they weren't to take it for their glory. They were to leave it or kill it for God's glory. That's what, he, that's what he wanted. And remember what happens after that. There's sin in the camp, right? God gives them Jericho, but right after that is the battle of Ai. You remember? And they, they send out, um, Joshua sends out a group of men to go scout them out. It's very interesting that God doesn't tell him to do that. But he does. And they see and they say, oh, we don't need that many people. We can take them easy. And they go with a few people and they get their heads handed to them. They come back and Joshua's on his face saying, Lord, what is, what's going on here? And God says to him, what are you doing on your face? There's sin in the camp. Because a man called Achan had taken riches for himself. So the whole nation is gathered together. They're gathered together as a nation, separated by clan, separated by family, till they get down to Achan. And God destroys him. Because he violated his law and he brought sin into the entire camp. So when God puts something under destruction, this is a serious matter. It is an offering to him and his glory. And that's what he has placed over the entire group of enemies throughout the entire world. The nations gathered against him. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. Now, this is the first of many words in this passage that are going to be strong words, giving a vivid picture about the fullness and completeness of the destruction God will, will um, wrought against his enemies. Verse 3, their slain shall be cast out, in other words, unburied, and their stench of their corpses shall rise. All the bodies will be laying around on the ground and they'll stink up the place. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. Now this, I think, is also, it, it is talking about their gods, but it is also giving us the nod that we are talking about the final judgment here. That language of finality. That this is what's being brought to us. Is there going to be a local fulfillment? There's always a local fulfillment. There's always a local fulfillment of the prophecies that are given. There's, there are a few that only have um, future uh, fulfillment. So let me, let me correct the record there. But most of them have a local. Many of them have a, a near future. And some of them have a far future fulfillment. Here the emphasis is on the far future final judgment. The end of verse 4. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from a fig tree. This is the same kind of language that we saw in the book of Revelation. In the sixth seal, we see the same kind of language. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 and following. When he opened the sixth seal, and remember this, this uh, cyclical understanding of Revelation, whereas all the bowls and the seals, all these different judgments progress, they're giving us a picture of the, from, from current all the way to the end of history, and they're increasing. And then the next set of judgments comes and it follows the same pattern. So here we are on the sixth seal. This is the height of, of the judgment. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth 
as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth and the great ones of the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? So this language reminds us of that. It's another hint that we are, we are in the realm of final judgment as Isaiah is saying all of these visions and all of these oracles and all, all of these woe oracles that come, they're all to prepare you that if you don't get on the right path, if you don't start obeying Yahweh and trusting in him instead of men, then you are going to be ending up in this place of judgment. Verse 5. For the sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom. Upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Now who are those people? It's all the enemies over all the earth. The second statement. The Lord, Yahweh, has a sword and it is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. So this is, this is giving us this idea of sacrificial language used to express the judgment. So it's all, using of this, it's all using the language of sacrifice. Why? Because God has devoted everyone to destruction that are enemies of his. They are an, an offering to him. They are a sacrifice satisfying his wrath because they refuse his means of satisfying his wrath. And so all this language has the idea of blood. You'll notice in verse 5, this judgment is upon Edom. Now we've already come across this um, already, this idea that Edom oftentimes stands as the archetype for all of God's enemies. Because Edom is brought forth in many places in Scripture as being the strongest enemy of God. Now remember where they start. They start connected to whom? Esau. So Esau, in his selfishness and in his, in his own um, passion to meet his own needs, comes against God's plan again, when, he, when he stands up against his brother. And now his brother, listen, Jacob was God's chosen ones, but Jacob wasn't acting really well, was he? But he was doing things according to God's plan. God had already planned to elevate him. So it starts back with this relationship of Jacob and Esau. But Edom is also the, the, the country who, one of the countries who impedes Israel from entering into the promised land. So right there, they're impeding God again as he is giving the promised land to his people. You can find that in Numbers chapter 20. This opposition continues all the way until God captures, God sends a, another kingdom into Judah to overtake them in 586. And it goes all the way through. Remember when we talked in Psalm 137, the, the, uh, by the waters of Babylon? We, we looked at that uh, psalm not very long ago in relation to Isaiah. Judah is mourning because they are in captivity and they, they don't know how to sing the songs of Zion. And in one of the verses in Psalm 137, it says, Remember, O Yahweh, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to the foundations. So Edom was participating in Babylon's overtaking of the southern kingdom. And they're crying out for vengeance against them from their God, even as they mourn. Lamentations 4.21 says, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, but to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. Speaking of God's judgment. In Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, I have loved you, says Yahweh, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares Yahweh? And God says, yet I have loved Jacob, but not Esau. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste the hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Mark that phrase. We'll come across that. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will be rebuild the ruins. Yahweh of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom Yahweh is angry forever. 
Your own eyes, God speaking to his people, your own eyes will see this, and you shall say, Great is Yahweh beyond the border of Israel. The whole book of Obadiah is spoken against Edom, but especially in this idea that Edom stands in the place as the archetype of all rebellious humanity. Listen to verses 15 and 16. For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the nations. As you, Edom, have done, it shall be done to you, all the nations. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. I want you to turn to one place. Turn to Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63 verse 1. Another passage talking about the day of vengeance, the day of recompense from Yahweh. Isaiah 63, 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Who is your, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. And looked, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. When Edom is talked about, it's talked about in these same types of language. Now I hope you're getting a little bit scrunched up in your chair. A little bit fearful because of the strong language that God uses against his enemy. Because he uses language that makes us cringe. And what we need to remember about that is this is God's holy character. He is a just God. And when he acts against sin, he acts against sin in totality on this day. Back in Isaiah 34. The second, the Lord statement in verse 6. For Yahweh has a sacrifice in Basra. That's another way of saying Edom. That was the capital of the day of Edom. A great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them and young steers with the mighty bulls. The land shall drink its fill of blood and their soil shall be gorged with fat. All this sacrificial language. But I want you to notice not all of the animals mentioned are part of the sacrificial system. So even we're talking, as we're talking about this kind of judgment, I think what's in view here are the strong soldiers, the ox, the soldiers who can be described as, as oxen and young steers. They don't stand a chance against God on that day. So the representatives of all the nation who are the strongest have no effect on the wrath of God when he decides to exercise it. Look at verse 8. For Yahweh has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Now in this verse, this day of vengeance and year of recompense is in judgment. It is for the sake of God's people. You can see that in the second half of the phrase. A year of recompense for the cause of Zion. When we get to the next passage, the, same, the next chapter, the same idea will be given for the salvation of God's people. See, as we have seen over and over in Isaiah, when God rises himself up, when God manifests himself, he manifests himself for judgment for those who are his enemies and salvation for those who are his children. And this is constantly shown to us in scripture and it's been prevalent in Isaiah and it is here as well. Verse 9 begins this process of showing us of, of the good land, I call it the garden, turned into a desert. Every, every part of creation is going to be affected by this. Because when God comes against sin, he's going to cleanse it all. Verse 9, and the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall be, become burning pitch. 
Now, there were pitch fields in that area, Edom being southeast of Jerusalem, down at the tip of the sea, of the Dead Sea. That this, this fits their geographical um, makeup, but it also fits the language of Sodom and Gomorrah, doesn't it? This is the way Sodom and Gomorrah is, is described when God rises up and in totality takes out the wicked ones in Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 10, night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. All humanity will be, uh, that are enemies of God will be wiped away. This is strong and complete vengeance of God. His righteous, holy uh, actions against sinful humanity who are his enemies. And it will go on forever and ever. And in verse 11, we start to see even more of this, of this um, uncreation. It's as if God is saying, listen, when I judge evil, it's like I'm uncreating the world. And I'm reversing all of that. And that'll be an important concept in the next chapter. Look at verse 11. Let me say one more thing about these animals. Uh, the, the animals that are mentioned and the birds that are mentioned, some of the Hebrew is kind of difficult, and scholars are not in agreement of what it refers to because we're just not sure. So I want you not to focus so much on the animals and birds that are mentioned as much as the meaning of the entire passage. I think there is a truth that most of the animals, if not all of them, are representing uncleanness in that idea of, of someone being unclean and that process that you have to go through to approach God. So I think there is an element of uncleanness in this. But look at verse 11. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. What an interesting phrase. Those exact exacting measuring tools that are used to create things, God will use that same exact measurement to uncreate them, to punish them, to mete out his justice. And this word for in the ESV, it says confusion and the next line emptiness. Those are the same two words used in Genesis chapter one, verse two, the tohu vabohu, tohu bohu, without form and void. So I really think what we're supposed to see here in our biblical theology is the same way when God created the earth and he had not yet fashioned and formed it into what, the, what is good. This is what he's reverting it to. This is what judge, how judgment is described to us, formless and void when he is finished. It's nobles. There is no one there to call it a kingdom. Or, or maybe there is no one there to call king and all its princes shall be nothing. He overcomes them all. There's no one worthy of being king, and if they were king, it wouldn't do any good. Why? Because the king has come. The creator has come. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals. Remember Malachi, that passage I just wrote, uh, read about um, Edom. An abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas, and the wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. What's this describing? When God created the heavens and earth, what does he do? He puts man in there as the pinnacle of his creation and says, you name the animals. You take dominion. You are the one to do this. And here he's reversing and he's taking man out of the picture and he brings all the animals in and they settle in. They dwell there. They rule there. And nothing uproots them. It's an uncreation picture when God comes in judgment. Everything good that everyone has trampled over and neglected, now God says, you lose it all. And what is it all pointing to? They're losing him. This is the time. Remember, we learned that God waits to show us mercy. And there will become a time when God does not wait any longer to bring final judgment. So if you're on this way, if you're on this way of rebellion and trusting yourself and trusting um, in all your own righteousness and all your own ways, this is where you end. If you're a believer here this morning and you spend more time chasing your own glory than God's, what right do you have to say that you are part of the kingdom who seeks God's glory? 
If, if your life is marked more by sinfulness than it is by seeking glory, and when you sin, you're not a repenter, you're a hider, then you're giving evidence that you might not know him and you're on this path and it leads to this kind of destruction. So, so the, I need you to hear this. I don't get caught up in all of the poetic metaphors because as bad as this sounds, eternal punishment, eternal judgment is worse. There, there's no way the human language can capture all of what God intends for those who are his enemies. who have spurned his grace until Christ comes again. And there will be no more time for that mercy to come. How certain is this? Look at verse 16. Seek and read from the book of Yahweh. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without a mate. Speaking of the totality of the turnover from men ruling and in the garden to, to animals ruling in the desert. For the mouth of Yahweh has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. So you want to know if this is certain? You want to know whether I'm just like a preacher rambling on about something that may or may not happen? It's written in the word. God has spoken it and the spirit will carry it out. And God's word will not come back void. This is certain. There is no avoiding this. The only thing that's having it not happen now, if you're here outside of Christ, and again, I don't care whether you're 6 or 80 here today, if you're outside of Christ, the only reason this has not happened is because God is also a merciful God. And he is long-suffering so that not because he's got a blue light special today and sin is all free, but he's long-suffering because he wants you to come to repentance. The mouth of the Lord is commanded. His spirit has gathered them in. Verse 17, he has cast the lot for them. The hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. That's talking about the animals dwelling there. Remember, this is a poetic picture. But if the animals are dwelling there, who is not? Forever and ever in the presence of God. So this is a very picturesque picture but it's bringing us the truth of eternal judgment. And I don't want any of you to be on that path. This is the path of rebellion that leads to judgment. And sometimes it feels like we're in that judgment already. I mean, we can look around as believers and be overwhelmed and we are trusting in God, but our spirits are just pressed down into nothing. You ever feel that way? If you don't, you don't watch the news or read the news or anything. You don't walk out into public so it can be sometimes difficult for us to remind ourselves of the glory of God in our presence and the glory that we will see in the future. It's difficult to remind ourselves and it can become completely overwhelming at times. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote a poem, either in 1863 or 1864, called Christmas Bells. And we know it as the hymn, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. The first verse, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. In music sweet, the tones repeat, there's peace on earth, good will to men. But he wasn't just with rose-colored glasses on. He's living, in, he's living and writing this during the Civil War, and he is mourning over dead soldiers coming home. He has friends who have lost um, their children in the war. And so his hymn is also full of the realization of what life on this, in this world, even after Christ has come, what it can look like. Because this is the verse as well. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song on, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now that's the way we live today, isn't it? We look around us and we feel like the entire world is mocking our God and mocking the truths of the gospel and yet God will not be deterred, will he? Because the, it's written in the book. God has spoken it and the Spirit will carry it out. And it's not only judgment, but it is also salvation for his people. Listen how the hymn ends. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. 
That's our message, isn't it? For those of us who believe in Christ. Our message is, no matter what it looks like, well, no matter what it looks like, God is ruling and reigning, and there is coming a time where all of this will be put to right because he is coming in vengeance and recompense for his people as well. And that's what chapter 35 is about. Yahweh will act with final salvation for those who trust him. And the metaphor that's used here is from a desert to a garden. This is a chapter full of reversals. It's a chapter full of reversals in the metaphors that are given to us for salvation and judgment. It is is from the the metaphor of the desert returning to the garden. It is also a metaphor from being uh, looking at the the uncreation in chapter 34 to recreation in chapter 35. All of those are driving us forth as we jump into chapter 35 where we see a picture of final redemption, but we also see what redemption looks like here after Christ has come and the road that we all as believers are on. Look at verse 1 of 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. That sounds like a place I'd like to spend some time in, doesn't it, you? Rejoicing and joy and singing and and prosperity and greenness and, and not desert, but a living, thriving garden. That's the way this starts. And exact, actually, the first word of chapter 35, verse 1, is shall be glad. It's the Hebrew for shall be glad. It kind of puts the umbrella over everything. There is going to be a time where God comes in judgment and the garden will look like a desert, but God's not done. The desert will be turned into a garden and it will be full of joy and dancing and lacking in sorrow The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of our God. Now remember in chapter 38, or chapter 33, in verse 9, we saw this same phrase used for judgment. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert, and Bashan and Carmel... Um, take off their shed off their leaves so this is a reversal of 33 9 these are pictures of places that are lush and green remember the the cedars of lebanon the trees growing there and in judgment they look like they're they're not fruitful at all and now we see it being reversed they're brought back to their former glory the they at the end of chapter or verse 2 it could be uh, uh, Lebanon and Carmel and Sharon, but I think it's probably the ransomed and the redeemed that are mentioned in verse 9 and 10. They're going to see this because what? They shall see the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of our God. Those in chapter 34 will see the glory of Yahweh and the majesty of our God as well. But they will see the power of judgment. Those who are in Christ on the highway that's brought here, we see it and we rejoice And we are overwhelmed with this kind of joy. Verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So here, the vengeance, the recompense, is leading to salvation. In chapter 34, verse 8, the vengeance and the recompense are leading to judgment. So this is this encouragement to us. Persevere, for glory awaits. In the life that we have right now, persevere and help each other strengthen weak knees. Help each other strengthen weak hands and feeble knees. Help each other not to have anxious hearts in this world. And you say, well, this is to Isaiah's time. It's not for us. Well, it is for us. Because when Christ came, this hope is ours. When it says here in verse 4, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. What's that referring to? It begins with Christ coming, doesn't it? This is when Christ comes. He comes to save. He'll come again for judgment. And that is in this passage as well. But we are brought back to the coming of Christ. And these words are used, if you read my green sheet, I was reminded yesterday that in my green sheet, I ask you what, how Paul used these words in Hebrews. That was a sin I'm confessing of from now. There's one thing I do, I am, that that I am certain of with Hebrews. Paul didn't write it. That's my conviction. 
It's also my conviction that, that um, well, I won't go into what my convictions are of who wrote it, but I don't think Paul wrote it. I don't know what I was thinking. Maybe that was the Holy Spirit correcting my theology. I don't know, but I just don't think, I don't think that's, um, I, I think we much have a better, a better look at Apollos or someone like him rather than Paul. But be that as it may, the writer of Hebrews uses verse 3 in chapter 12 of Hebrews. Turn there for me. This is important for us to see. This is in the passage talking about the discipline of the Lord. That the Lord disciplines those he loves. We submit to our Father's discipline even though it's not perfect. So we should submit to the Lord's discipline. So this is where we distinguish between believers and non-believers. When you pursue sin, if you're a believer, God will discipline you. It is not his judgment. It's not his wrath against you. How do we know that? Because if you're a believer, his wrath has already been placed on Christ. And he's not going to place it on you as well. The sacrifice of Christ was sufficient. It accomplished everything it intended. So when God reveals sin in us, and he might even discipline us and often does from that sin, this is a sign that we are his people. We are his children. Look at verse 12 of Hebrews 12. After that discussion of discipline, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, quoting our passage in Isaiah, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So how are we strengthening? We're encouraging people to strive for holiness. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Remember that root of bitterness is not bitterness of you being bitter at someone else. It is someone who doesn't pursue holiness, that causing a root of bitterness within the body. This is what happens when people in our body wantonly pursue sin and we don't go after them. It causes problems in the body. Verse 16 that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. So even in Hebrews, we're reminded of the same context of Isaiah 34 and 35. Who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he, re- he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So the writer of Hebrews uses this to encourage us today because Christ has come. So back in Hebrews 35, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. This is the coming of Christ and the the inauguration of his kingdom where he comes to redeem people from the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of God's dear son, Jesus himself. That's what's being brought here. Now, this is the beginning of our lives being lived a certain way to guarantee that on the day when he returns again for judgment, for vengeance and recompense, we've looked at those passages like from Revelation 19, uses the same kind of language. I'm not going to go back there today. But there there is a process that happens with Christ coming accomplishing his perfect life where he deserves no discipline from his father because he obeyed every law. He did everything according to his father's will. He died on the cross looking forward to what was before him for that joy set before him. He was raised on the third day. He now sits at the right hand of the father ruling and reigning. And all of us that are in Christ, that have trusted in him, now we're in his kingdom with his marching orders. And it's pretty specific in the scriptures what that looks like. And Isaiah is going to remind us of that. Verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Now that's talking about people that those wicked leaders, the wicked rulers, would have unjustly persecuted. They would have oppressed them, right? So in Isaiah's day, the people would know this. Anybody who's walking according to Yahweh's commands are going to be oppressed by wicked leaders. And so all these people are brought to us and saying that it will be reversed. 
Just like we've seen the reversal so far of the garden or the desert to the garden. And we've seen the reversal that the the vengeance and recompense coming now is for the people of God, not only for judgment. This is also how we know that we're talking about Jesus as the inauguration of this. There will come a time where there will be no more blind and deaf and and lame and, and mute because we'll be in heaven where no sin will be there. But Jesus, in his miracles, when he came, was the one who was saying, listen, this is what the Old Testament talked about, was me. The Messianic passages in the Old Testament are me. Matthew chapter 11, 2 through 6. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This passage is inaugurated in Jesus' first coming. And we know that because just a few chapters later, we see passages like this in Matthew 15. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. So we are talking here about the gospel of Jesus Christ as he comes to seek and to save the lost. So it's inaugurated there. So we're living in this time. We're living in the time where we and our weaknesses are strengthened by Christ and his perfections. We're living in the time where we and our weaknesses, we're encouraged by each one of us in the body to be strong, to to not turn away from Christ, to not turn away from our sin. And sometimes it takes a long time, doesn't it? Have you ever been in a situation where you need to be told more than once about what God's word means to you and you actually obey it? I never have been in that way, so I'm just asking Of course we have. There have been times that people have come to you and admonished you to come away from your sin and you go away complaining about them. What right do they have? They got sin in their life too. Until what? Until the discipline of the Lord through the power of the Spirit overwhelms you and you say, yes, Lord, I hear you. And this is required because there is a path that we should be on if we're going to claim that we are tied to the Holy One. Look at the middle of verse 6. For the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool in the thirsty ground, springs of water. That reverses 34.9, where the curse was going to have those things overwhelm and turn it into a desert. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. 34.13, a reversal of that, a better picture of the garden to come. It's a spiritual picture of salvation coming to lost people, and it's also a physical picture of the regeneration of the world when Christ comes again. Verse 8, And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. Now why is it called the way of holiness? I think for two reasons. It leads to the Holy One of Israel, and it's made by the Holy One of Israel. It leads to our relationship forever with God and Christ, but it is made by the Holy One of Israel, which we'll look at in just a moment. But there are also some characteristics of this way. The unclean shall not pass over it. That's Revelation 21. Remember, in the new heavens and new earth, what happens? There is no uncleanness, no sin that enters in. Only the righteous come in. The kings of the earth who are turned to Christ bring their gifts and bring their offerings, but the sinfulness, the unrighteous will not come in. Revelation 21, 27. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if, they, even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. You hear what that's saying? If you've ever been a fool in your life, there's hope for you if you're going to walk on the way of holiness. Because this transforms us, the gospel does. And even if we go back to doing something foolish, our sins are forgiven. 
Returning to Christ, letting him exalt us at the proper time. Walking on the way of holiness, there will be no fools. Now that's a two-edged blessing, isn't it? There are not going to be any fools to trip you up. There are not going to be the fools that hate God. But there will be people who have acted foolishly in the past still be there. Why? Because it is not our works. It is Christ's works. And he has placed us on this way to walk reflecting his character. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransom of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now we know that's not been, that has not come to perfection today, has it? But it will. It's where we are headed. In Christ, he has placed us on this way of holiness that we might walk in such a way that's worthy of our calling, reflecting of the glory that he is manifesting in us. And even when we sin, his, his, the, the, the cross work of Christ has taken care of that sin. And so God disciplines us and brings us back. Even if we've acted foolish, he brings us back on the pathway where there is no foolishness because that is dictated by the word of God itself and Christ himself. And when this life is over and Christ returns for this day of vengeance and recompense that will come forth as told in chapter 34 and in chapter 35, we are the people that receive these blessings if we are walking in Christ. So even in the midst of this wild and crazy world that can overwhelm us, even in the midst of the world where we see people who are professing believers do things that look like non-believers, even in this world where there, there are all the sufferings that we have from sin, the sin of others, the, the, the sin of sickness and, and that, that is just part of the fall, the sin of ourselves, when we capitulate to sin, even when all of that is there, this is the picture that motivates us, is it not? It's full of joy. It's full of singing. There is no sin. There is no death. There's no dying. There's no sorrow. There's no crying because Christ has come to obliterate all of that. And God in his glory will act in holiness and righteousness and remove all evil. And that is encouraging for us today because today it looks like he's not working in that way. But our enemy is not people, is it? It's not flesh and blood. The enemy is, the the battle is going on in the spiritual realm. And so there are yet people that God has to redeem who are the elect from the foundation of the world that right now might be your enemies. Right now might be persecuting you. Right now might be sinning against you. And yet we're not going to know till this day whether God has redeemed them because he is a powerful redeemer. Restoring the garden, recreating our own hearts and regeneration. On that day, the whole creation will be regenerated. So what does it mean to walk on this? Who gets to walk on this? Who gets to walk on this highway of holiness? Well, it's pretty clear by now, I think. But just in case it's not, let's remind ourselves. Here's what Andrew Murray says about our lives. Our lives must be as holy as our prayers. Our prayers are to prove their reality by the fruit they bear in the holiness of our life. True devotion in prayer will assuredly be rewarded by God's grace with the power to live a life of true devotion to him and his service. Do you hear that gospel dripping from that? It is God who equips us to walk in a way that glorifies him. What we do is crucify sin. Because sin will get in the way of us receiving that kind of glorious spirit-led blessing. Proverbs 16, 17 says this, The highway of the upright turns aside from evil. Whoever guards his way preserves his life. We're on that highway if you're a professing believer today. You are turning away from evil. You are the person who recognizes it, discerns it, and turns away from it. And and, And when you're guarding that, it preserves your life. And that is Christ preserving your life through obedience to him. I want you to turn just to three passages. Isaiah chapter 40. Three passages and then we're closing. And I do mean closing. I know I'm not supposed to say that, but sometimes it's true. This might be one of them. Isaiah chapter 40. I'm going to start in verse 1. We're heading to verse 3. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. 
that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. The voice, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. So this voice in the wilderness of Isaiah 43 is attributed to John the Baptist paving that way. And he says, make straight the desert a highway for our God. This is, the, this is what it looks like to walk because this has been trod already by Jesus. Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 19. Speaking of the the certainty of God's promises to save his people. Verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Do you see this? This is the road of Jesus. The highway of holiness is what Jesus took right into the holy of holies. And he makes his sacrifice full and final, nothing more needed. And we are on that path. If we want to be with God for eternity, if if we want to see the eternity that's pictured in Isaiah chapter 35, we are walking on the same path because this is what Christ has already done to provide the way for those. The last passage, Mark chapter 8. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. By turning and seeing, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, and where is he going? He's going to the cross to be raised and ascend to the right hand of the Father. He's going in the path that we just read about in Hebrews 6. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what the road of holiness looks like. That's what the way of holiness looks like. Denying ourselves and living for the glory of God. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." This is the road to holiness, crucifying yourself, picking up your cross, and following Christ. And the word of God gives you that. The word of God is written, God spoke it, and the Holy Spirit will carry it out. And so these commands, do you hear what it said? If you're going to despise or deny the word of God, then God will deny, Christ will deny you. Now that is for salvation, But it also should give us pause here when we're living through our life and we're ignoring the word of God. And people come to us and help us see the word of God and we ignore the word of God and we stay rebellious. Lord, help us in those times for God to give us the grace he promises for his believers and put us back on the path of holiness. So it's not the work you do on the path of holiness. It is the work that Christ has already done. And he places us on that path and said, this is the way of the redeemed, of the ransomed. Because God is going to take the sacrifice of all the enemies of God, but he has given his son the sacrifice for all the friends of God, all the children of God. So we are the ones who have been redeemed. 
So the question is before you now, just as it was when we started, which way? Which way are you on? And does your life look like the way of rebellion or does your life look like the way of salvation, the way of holiness? Because if you are in Christ, it will be growing in the holiness of Christ. And you will be growing in your ability to repent. You will be growing in your humility. You will be growing in the way that you pick up your cross daily. And if that doesn't mark your life, chapter 34 is your end. So turn to Christ now. He is the one who offers redemption, salvation to all who will believe, all who repent of their sin and turn to him in his perfect work. The believers here this morning, we're singing, aren't we? Even though we don't feel like singing, we know what's coming. We are triumphantly singing, aren't we? Even in the midst of the chaos of our world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us, your mercy for such wonderful passages of Scripture that bring to us the fullness of our salvation. We ask you, Father, that you would give us grace and mercy to remain on this path of holiness, that we would not be a people who are constantly veering off and needing your discipline, that we would not be a people who are constantly um, looking to our own self and never seeking your glory. For we, Father, desire that assurance that our lot is with the singing ones, with the ones who have been redeemed, with the ones who, when you come in vengeance and recompense for your people, you will save us fully and finally. So make that so of us, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.